Now, we've been going through the book of Galatians here Sunday mornings, and our hope is that the teachings will actually coincide with the particular study that many of the ABFs are currently going through based on a book called What is the Gospel? And this morning we come to Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. So I'll invite you to join me there, if you will, Galatians chapter 2, 1 through 10, and we'll read this passage together first here, Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles, but I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who is with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by externals. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The title of my message this morning is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And I have, in fact, um, actually borrowed the title from a book with the same title written by uh, author Tolian Chivijan, and I'd recommend that to you, but do want to give him credit. The title just fits our passage this morning because our passage is very concerned about the danger of adding things to Jesus and his work. And Paul's concern is that we add nothing to Jesus. So we'll focus on three major themes found in this passage this morning. Three uh, big uh, themes that run through it. First, we'll look at the preservation of the gospel. Secondly, we'll see the freedom of the gospel. And thirdly, the unity of the gospel. So gospel preservation, number one. Gospel freedom, number two. And gospel unity, number three. So first, uh, it seems pretty common for people to have what is called a life verse or a favorite Bible verse, some, some part of Scripture, some verse in the Bible that's very meaningful to them. It's common. But I will say, I've never met a single person who has Galatians chapter 2, verse 3 as their life verse, but not even Titus was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. I've just, I've never seen that. 
But this morning, we're going to see how incredibly important that verse is. I don't know if you can tell by the way the passage flows as we read it, but Paul is worked up. This is his second visit to Jerusalem. It's recorded in Acts chapter 11. And he was basically forced to go up there. He was kind of backed into a corner and he went up there in order to preserve the gospel in its true form, to vindicate it. If you've been familiar with the book of Galatians so far, if you've been coming Sunday mornings, then by now you're well aware of the harsh tension between Paul and the Judaizers. The Judaizers were false teachers who taught that the Jewish law must be upheld to attain salvation. They were following Paul around, and they were trying to sabotage his message. The true gospel message that Paul received by way of revelation from the resurrected Christ himself. And these false brothers, as Paul calls them, were spreading the lie that Paul's gospel contradicted the gospel that the apostles in Jerusalem taught. They were spreading the lie that the message of Paul was different than and in fact contradicted the gospel that the apostles in Jerusalem taught. They were the real apostles, the big guns, the pillars. And because Paul taught salvation by grace alone through the work of Christ alone, the law was completely fulfilled. And yet now uh, the Judaizers are claiming that the real apostles were with them. They're on their side. The real apostles in Jerusalem are with them. And they are saying that Gentile converts must also convert. They must trust Christ and convert to the uh, Mosaic law, the old covenant law. Jesus plus circumcision, you see. We find their teaching in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul knew very well that if, if indeed there was this discontinuity between his teaching and that of the apostles in Jerusalem, he knew that if there was tension there, great damage would be done to the church and to the spread of the gospel. This is why he's worked up. This is why Paul fears that he was running his race in vain. Paul was, he was not simply traveling to Jerusalem as a great theologian to argue with other great theologians about some minor theological points. That's not what's going on here. The very truth of the gospel was at stake Verse 5 tells us, Paul was fighting for the preservation of the gospel for future generations. He wanted to see the gospel in its true form, the true, uh, beautiful, glorious gospel he received from Christ. He wanted to see it preserved for future generations, even for you and I right now this morning. We owe Paul our gratitude for caring so much about this. And by God's sovereign grace, the gospel was indeed Preserved. There is constant importance for gospel preservation. This would include not dumbing it down. It would include not giving into our modern day anti gospel fads. They're not Judaizer fads, but we've got our own challenges. The gospel Paul was fighting for was not just his opinion. He didn't go into this thinking, I'm going to fight for this because it's, it's a truth. 
He was fighting for the truth. Paul was fighting for objective truth. And for him and for us, it's not enough to simply share the gospel. The gospel must be defended. That's what he was doing. Especially in a culture like ours that is increasingly hostile to the Christian faith, we have to be working toward the preservation of the gospel. We have to be careful because we are under great pressure to compromise its message. And that's nothing new. This is exactly what Paul was worked up about. Jesus is building his church, yes. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it, of course. But we've got to play our part too. God not only ordains the ends, he also ordains the means. And as Christians today, we are called to protect the truth of the gospel from the opposition it constantly faces. Paul was not a relativist. Paul would not tolerate the approach that says, well, you believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe, and everybody has to decide what's true for themselves. That's your particular opinion or interpretation of that particular passage, and this is my particular interpretation of that passage. Who knows who's really right in the end? Not a chance. Not a chance, because Paul believed an objective truth. He believed the Judaizers were wrong, and not just wrong, but a serious threat, a danger to the church of Jesus Christ. As politically incorrect as it is, Paul was not willing to budge on this. Scripture tells us Paul was willing to be all things to all men for a number of different issues, but he wouldn't budge on this. He was very stubborn when it came to this truth of the gospel and preserving it. Martin Luther, the great reformer, calls you and I to that same stubbornness. Not stubbornness in general, like, like my husband is very stubborn. Not like that. Paul is, or, uh, Martin Luther calls us to the stubbornness of the gospel. He says, Our stubbornness on this issue is pious and holy. For by it we are striving to preserve the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to keep the truth of the gospel. If we lose this, Luther says, we lose God, Christ, all the promises, faith, righteousness, and eternal life. So Paul's in Jerusalem with Titus. And he's setting before the other apostles the gospel that he preaches, fighting for its preservation. And even after they heard it, even after these real apostles in Jerusalem heard Paul's message, even after that, yet not even Titus, who is with me, was compelled to be circumcised. Forced is another appropriate translation of that word, and you'll find it in the English Standard Version. Yet, not even Titus, who is with me, was forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Boom. Titus was a test case. That's why Paul brought him. And with that statement, there is great victory for the gospel. See? This could actually work as a life verse, if you wanted it to. You would have to explain this every time it came up. But if you wanted Galatians 2.3 as a life verse, you could do it. Paul fought for the preservation of the gospel. And the true, unadulterated gospel that was preserved 
brings absolute freedom, unlike anything else. It's the only thing in the entire universe that brings the kind of freedom Paul wants us to see for those who believe it. And so that takes us to our second theme this morning, the freedom of the gospel. There's an article called The Affirmations of Humanism, a Statement of Principles. And author, author Paul Kurtz says, We deplore efforts to degrade human intelligence, to seek to explain the world in supernatural terms, and to look outside nature for salvation. We deplore efforts to look outside nature for salvation. Nature certainly includes not just the outside world, but also the nature within us as well. We deplore efforts to look outside our natural selves for salvation. Though this is a stated principle of humanism, the idea here is really the essential basis of all other religions, all other religions in the world except for the gospel. And I know that's a bold claim, but all other religions are essentially rule-oriented and require the practice of moral and spiritual disciplines in order to attain salvation. So all other religions, though widely varied, are all about uh, our salvation, however it's defined, coming to us through our own human effort. All other religions are forms, then, of works righteousness. And that is exactly the toxic problem in the theology of the Judaizers. Paul calls it slavery in verse 4. John chapter 8, Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And in our passage this morning, we see the, the, the freedom. This, we see this freedom in its form that comes through the gospel, and we also see its opposite. We see the slavery that comes from an added-to gospel, which is no gospel at all. The Judaizers were promoting an added-to gospel, which whatever the thing added to it is, it's works righteousness. And we can call what the Judaizers were promoting legalism. Legalism. Legalism is the belief and the practice that obedience to a set of rules is the essential basis for salvation. Legalism is the belief that we are accepted by God on the basis of our moral efforts. Legalism is an outright denial of the gospel, which explains Paul's uptightness. He's uptight. There's a book called Delighting in the Law of the Lord, and Jerem Bars got it right when he said, all legalism is an implacable enemy of the gospel of grace. The root issue that the Galatians were struggling with because of the Judaizers is exactly the same root issue that we struggle with today, trying to add something to the gospel. They were prone to adding the Mosaic law to the gospel. Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation. Today, we're not all gung-ho about circumcision as being required for salvation, usually. But what are we gung-ho about? What are we prone to add 
to the gospel. See, this gets tricky. Legalism creeps in on us. It's subtle. In his commentary on this passage, Phil Riken notes that more often than not, the things we add to the gospel are good things in themselves. Christians are always trying to add something to the gospel, he says. They elevate some aspect of Christianity to a place of supreme importance so that the good news becomes faith in Christ plus something else. And that something else is usually not an evil thing. What are we inclined to add to the gospel? A particular experience of the Holy Spirit, perhaps? Some method of having devotions or raising a family? Some particular style of worship music? A political or social cause? What are we prone to struggle with here? Jesus plus reading only certain books. Jesus plus homeschooling. Jesus plus public schooling. Jesus plus not drinking fermented beverages. Riken is right. These things are good. These additions to the gospel are not bad things. And oftentimes, these values and these behaviors flow directly from our relationship with Christ and our faith in Christ alone. Oftentimes, they flow out of our faith. But it's also true that oftentimes, there is great room for gray area here. There is room for disagreement between Christians. This Christian believes all public schools are evil. That Christian doesn't really have that big of a problem with them. This Christian watches certain TV shows or movies. That Christian likes to avoid them. Now, of course, there are certainly things we can take part in that are downright sinful. But that's not really what's in view here. When good things are elevated to a place that they shouldn't be with respect to the gospel... And we start to become self-righteous and we start to rely on our behavior for salvation and we start to feel superior to other Christians who don't share those particular values. That's the danger of legalism here. Are these things causing division among us? Are the differences we might have in these particular types of areas causing disunity? They shouldn't be. They shouldn't be. Not if we truly embrace and live by the gospel. Legalism is a trap, and it is too easy for us to fall into it. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said, an individual Christian might see fit to give up all sorts of things for special reasons. Marriage, or meat, or beer, or the cinema. But the moment he starts saying these things are bad in themselves or looking down his nose at other people who do use them, he's taken a wrong turn. Because that's what happens, isn't it? We get a superiority complex. We have our own personal list of rules, do's and don'ts, and we start to feel superior to other so-called Christians who have different lists. 
The point of all this is that we naturally love works righteousness. We naturally love turning things into works righteousness. The problem has not gone away. That's why one author rightly says, we are no different than the Galatians tinkering around with the law. We just have different ways of expressing it. So legalism is subtle. It creeps up on you. It's a trap. But don't stop there, friends, because legalism gets subtler. More subtle. More subtler. For real, listen to this. Brian Vickers, his book, Justification by Grace Through Faith, he brings it home. We often decry works righteousness while taking pride in our freedom from the legalism so prevalent in other Christians. We might think those Christians with their rules, their do this and don't do that, they've never understood the gospel. We, however, have the true gospel and are free from such legalistic nonsense. We quickly forget that whatever we have or understand is a gift from God. And it is the height of arrogance to act as though we conjured up anything good in ourselves apart from God's grace. It is right to deny legalism and to embrace the freedom of the gospel. But, Vickers says, as soon as our so-called freedom becomes yet another badge to represent our own accomplishments or identity, we might as well be keeping every rule in the book and relying on our works. Yikes. I condemn legalism. But I better watch out so that my condemnation isn't itself coming from a self-righteous, prideful heart. The height of arrogance. So Jaron Barr's got it right again when he says, Each one of us has a Pharisee in your own heart. Each one of us has a Pharisee in our own hearts, a Pharisee who needs regular rebuke. I have a Pharisee in my own heart, and it needs regular rebuke. It's impossible for us to refinish the finished work of Christ, yet we so naturally, apart from grace, try to add to the gospel. Even though Romans 3, among other places, harshly denies this, we like to think that we've got something in our natural selves that we can offer God. It's Pastor's Gary turn, uh, Pastor Gary's turn recently to pick the book for us to read, Pastor Gary and John and James and myself. It was Gary's turn to pick the book. And we've been going through it. It's called The Cross of Christ by John Stott. And in it, John Stott says, The pride of our hearts is so deeply ingrained and so subtly insidious that it would be easy for us to nurse the idea that we've got something of our own to offer God. And we do nurse it, don't we? In all these ways and many more, we try to add to the gospel. And when we do that, when we do it, it invariably enslaves us. Paul says in verse 4 that these false brothers infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. I think we'd be pretty familiar with this slavery if we looked at it. Tim Keller describes what it looks like. Anybody who believes that our relationship with God is based on keeping up moral behavior 
is on an endless treadmill of guilt and insecurity. Because if you really believe that salvation depends on how good you are, well, then you'll never be 100% sure you're saved. You'll constantly fear rejection. And still, we love legalism because we love to be able to measure our own spiritual health based on our ability to perform. But as Paul warns, it leads to slavery and guilt and insecurity. No matter how you slice it, Chavijan, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, his brilliant title that I stole, he explains this powerfully in that book. Legalism happens when what we need to do, not what Jesus has already done, becomes the end game. Our performancism leads to pride when we succeed and despair when we fail. But ultimately, it leads to slavery either way because it becomes all about us and what we must do to establish our own salvation instead of resting in what Jesus has already accomplished for us. Now, when when we rightly and finally rest in what Jesus has accomplished for us, in God's grace alone, when we do that, doesn't that just give us permission to just keep sinning, make our own choices, live how we want? I mean, you know Paul's answer to this, right, in Romans 6? By no means. But seriously, think about it. Why obey then? If because of the gospel, God is perfectly pleased with you right now, the way you are, because of what Jesus has done for you, not because of who you are, if he's perfectly pleased with you, why, why try to please him? If you're asking that, you've still got to fully grasp the freedom of the gospel? Do you know the freedom that comes from the gospel? My faith has found a resting place not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. When we are truly liberated from the slavery of works righteousness and truly trust Christ alone, only then can we taste the overwhelming, life-changing freedom of the gospel. It is freedom in knowing that our standing with God, our salvation is absolutely unshakable. Why? Because it depends on Him, not us. It depends on Christ's finished work, not our moral efforts. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your relationship with God? That was a question that was asked of me a few years ago. Perhaps most of us would stutter a little bit. We wouldn't want to sound overconfident, but we also wouldn't want to admit that we're terrible Christians. Maybe a 6, 7 on a good day. Remember the freedom of the gospel. When Charles Spurgeon was speaking on Christian growth, he said, We will grow in grace, but we will never be more completely pardoned than when we first believed. We will one day stand before the glorious presence of God in his own sacred courts and will see the well-beloved and wear his likeness, but we shall not even then be more perfectly forgiven than we are at this present moment. In other words, 50 billion years from now, when you and I are enjoying life in our resurrected bodies in the new heaven and new earth, 
and, and we do not struggle with sin. You do not struggle with the things you struggle with right now because sin and death, all of it's gone. Even in that moment, God will not be more pleased with you then than he is right now. Right this very second, if you're in Christ. If you really understand that, and if, the, if, the, if the, the freedom and the liberation of your eternal security in Christ, if that sweeps over you, then you've got all the motivation you need and all the resources you need to obey and to do the good works that were prepared in advance for you to do. Ephesians chapter 2. Spurgeon says, good works are not the root of faith, but they are its fruit. Keller says, we obey not in the fear and insecurity of hoping to earn salvation. We obey in the freedom and security of knowing we are already saved in Christ. We obey in the freedom of gratitude. Lewis says that while legalism tells us God will love us if we're good, the gospel tells us God will make us good because he loves us. And it is this glorious, life-giving gospel of freedom in Christ that binds you and I together. It binds Christians together in, in unity, the kind of unity we get a glimpse of in our passage this morning as we turn to our final theme, the unity of the gospel. Verse 6 tells us that the apostles in Jerusalem were in full agreement with Paul on the gospel. And verses 7 through 10 tell us about the unity between Paul and these other gospel preachers. They saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. And God was at work in both men and both ministries. James, Peter, and John, these pillars, these real apostles... They gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. That was an important handshake. The truth of the gospel inevitably produces great unity in the church because it transcends all earthly distinctions. Every earthly distinction you could possibly think of. Ethnicity, gender, socioeconomical standing, uh, personalities. None of it matters. Paul and Peter ministered to radically different people, but they had the same message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Each of the apostles had his own way of preaching the gospel, but whatever differences there might have been in terms of style or emphasis, there was no difference in content. John Stott explains beautifully, Paul is at pains in this passage to show that he was in full agreement with the Jerusalem apostles and they with him. There is only one New Testament gospel, only one Christianity. There are not several different legitimate alternatives. And Stott brings it home. It is still so today. If there is only one gospel in the New Testament, there is only one gospel for the church. 
The gospel has not changed with the changing centuries. Whether it's preached to young or old, to east or west, to Jews or Gentiles, to cultured or uncultured, to scientists or non-scientists, to Sheboygan or Usberger Kohler, although its presentation may vary, its substance is the same. Stott, by the way, never actually said anything about Sheboygan or Usberger Kohler, but I thought it was fitting. This is important for us to understand. As Christians, we are called to give the right hand of fellowship to other Christians when we, when we recognize the grace given them. We're not in competition with other churches or ministries. The ministry you are involved in is not better than the ministry he is involved in or she is involved in. We have one common message that unites us, one common mission, and we ought to celebrate what God is doing through others. It might be easier for us to do that with people who are very similar to us, but what about people who are not similar to us in any way other than allegiance to Christ? N.T. Wright says, if, if Jesus is Lord of the whole world, if he's Lord of the whole world, then those who believe him, who give allegiance to him, must form a single family. There cannot be divisions based on nationhood or race. One author makes this point very powerfully. An American Christian has far more in common with a gospel believer who lives a nomadic existence on the Mongolian plains than they do with a non-believer who lives on their street, drives a similar car, whose kids go to the same school as theirs. Christian unity takes no account of cultural distinctives. Christian unity is never contingent on cultural similarity. Maybe we can make that point a bit more potent. An American Christian has far more in common with an Iraqi Christian or an Afghani Christian or a North Korean Christian, than they do with a non-believer who lives on their street, drives the same car, and whose kids go to the same school as theirs. Even the Christians in nations that are considered to be enemies of our nation are closer to us in unity because of the gospel than our non-Christian neighbors. Through the gospel, God has one worldwide family. We need to wrap our minds around that. Now, lastly, Paul says in verse 10 that all the Jerusalem apostles asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Remembering the poor is fundamental to Christianity. Helping the poor is not the gospel but it is one necessary result of the gospel. In the context of this particular meeting in Jerusalem, recorded in Acts 11, the Jewish churches were much poorer than the churches Paul was working with in the Gentile areas. The Jerusalem apostles were asking Paul to keep the Gentile churches and the, uh, the Jewish churches tightly connected. That's what they wanted. They wanted... It, it's a very practical, tangible application of their unity in the gospel. 
Just like the church recorded in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. Nobody claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Last week in Sunday school, I brought that verse up and I I referenced it because a high school student came in to Cafe 19 with a new iPad and I said, I want that. Do you know in Acts 4.32, the believers... They didn't, consider any, they didn't consider any possession their very own. They, they were willing to share everything with everyone. Do you know that? He didn't buy it. But you look at that theme. You look at the way the New Testament church was described. And sure, it had some pretty serious problems. Read Corinthians. But you look at the unity there, and the apostles are saying, the apostles in Jerusalem are saying to Paul, look, your Gentile churches, they're kind of far away from us. There's a completely different cultural situation than us. But we need to stay tightly connected. Our Jewish churches are poor. You guys have great wealth. Let's keep connected and share resources so that we continue to better one another in the gospel. So on the one hand, in this passage, we see Paul in this passage, we see him very stubborn, very frazzled, fighting for the truth of the gospel. And on the other hand, at the end here, we see Paul very caring and compassionate, eager to help the poor. Martin Luther calls Christians to emulate these very same characteristics. He says, now as concerning faith, we ought to be invincible and more hard, if it might be, than the adamant stone. But as touching charity, we ought to be soft and more flexible than the reed or leaf that is shaken with the wind, ready to yield to everything. Is the gospel doing that in us? Because of the truth of the gospel and the freedom of the gospel and the unity we experience with other believers, are we ready to yield to everything when it comes to needs around us? May that be our prayer as we continually fight for gospel preservation, as we continually live in the freedom we have in the gospel. And as we do so, we enjoy the unity we have in the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the great privilege of standing among these fellow believers, these brothers and sisters in Christ, sinful as they are like me, these saints who are clothed in righteousness. I thank you for the great honor it is for us to gather together and worship, set aside trivial differences, and come together on the ultimate importance of the gospel. And Father, I pray that you will help me and you will help help us to, to be steadfast in our commitment to the gospel that we won't dilute it, that we won't be tempted, even with great pressure, to succumb to uh, the anti-gospel fads of our day. And Father, that you would help us to increase our strength through your Spirit, 
to live in light of the gospel and live out of our identity in Christ more powerfully, being, a, being such a, a, a powerful community of selfless believers. And may our commitment, Father, be first and foremost to Christ. Before everything else, before American or Republican or Democrat or whatever type of uh, earthly distinction we can think of that we align ourselves with that are normally good things, Father, let Christ be first and foremost. Everything else is secondary. We pray for a fresh reminder of the truth of the gospel. Encourage our hearts in the knowledge that we are forgiven forever. Sins, past, present, and future, have been taken care of. It is finished. Father, guard us from the temptation of relying on our own goodness, which we have none of, for our salvation. In all these things, we pray that, Father, your name would be glorified through us as a community. And help us now, we pray, in these next moments even, as we uh, fellowship with one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.